Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Vin Brew. All of the adults in my family were just standing there silently consoling children while glaring at me with this look in their eyes that very clearly said, What the fuck is wrong with you? Can't you do anything right? That and more, but before that, don't forget San Francisco! Everyone in or around San Francisco, Risk is coming to San Francisco Sketchfest on January 22nd. Come on out, January 22nd, 2022, our first live show of the new year and our first time back at Sketchfest since, you know, all the brouhaha. And what a cast this is! Jonah Ray, Yamanika Saunders, Shalewa Sharp, and Mary Jo Peel. That is January 22nd. It's at 7 p.m. at Swedish American Hall. Come on out. You can always get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is George Shearing behind me now, and we're calling this week's episode Holiday Stories Redux 2. 
<laughs> rather awkward title, but the whole idea is that this is our second, like, kind of best of. The best of the stories that have been on our Holiday Stories episode. And this one, it's just a great collection. In a little bit, we're going to hear a very beloved story by Elna Baker. Before that, a little something from Vin Brew. But before that, we're going to start with a story that was shared by Brendan J. Sullivan. I'll tell you, I remember when Brendan came to my apartment to record this story in 2018. <laughs> and it now feels like that was two decades ago. Here he is now. This is Brendan J. Sullivan with a story we call A Very Transit Strike Christmas. So I call my mom and in the middle of her telling me how excited she is for Christmas, I know I'm about to break her heart by telling her I can't come home this Christmas. I just got a job and because of that, guess who's stuck working Christmas? I was 22 years old, I moved to New York City, I wanted to be a writer, but the only job I could get was in this one restaurant, they had a terrible uniform and it was like 45 minutes each way in the commute. The restaurant was failing, we were making like no money at the time, so it was crazy to be in New York City among all these wealthy people, we're literally staring at Trump Tower from where we are. Now the only thing I liked about this restaurant was the hostess. I worked on the bar where no one ever came and she stood directly across from me. She had big, beautiful, curly hair and she was from this big Jamaican family way out in Canarsie at the end of the L train. I remember the only thing I really said to her at this point was, hey, I really like your hair. And she said to me, oh, I just got it done. And she showed me the part in her hair where someone in her hair salon had sewn in the curly hair to the braids that were close to her scalp. And I said, oh my God, I thought that was your natural hair. And she said, white people, every single time you say that word for word. I was thinking about my cousins back home and my brother and his kids and how much fun they're going to have. I started feeling sort of like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer when, you know, everybody's having fun without him, that kind of thing. I had, I had FOMO for Christmas. So I flip on the TV. This is 2005. That's how you got the news. And I see a Christmas miracle is brewing. Transit trouble today here in New York that could ultimately affect millions of commuters. NBC in New York City, bus and subway workers walked off the job early this morning, leaving millions of commuters scrambling for alternative ways to get to work. The New York City Transit Authority is going on a general strike starting the following morning. There will be no trains, buses, or ferries anywhere in the five boroughs. It was like having an adult snow day. I don't have to go to work anymore. I can't get to the city. I've got just a few minutes, and if I get to the bus station in time, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to surprise my mom on Christmas. So I go into work to gather my things to get the hell out of there. And my boss says to me, hey, Sullivan, you live in Brooklyn, right? And I said, yeah, yeah, shame about that transit strike, huh? And she's like, hey, it's no big deal. I live in Brooklyn, too. So my husband has a car, 
I'll just come pick you up in the morning when I come in, and then you can work. You can actually work all the extra shifts for all the people who can't come in this week. Isn't that great? And as I see, everybody else still has that grin on their face. Everybody else who lives outside of the city is still getting out of this place. And I just stood there thinking, yeah, great. I'll spend more time with my boss. I'll spend two hours in traffic with her and her husband and then come into work two hours early and pick up all these shifts from all these lucky people who are going home for Christmas. They have these smiles that just say, we already know exactly what party we're going to. We're going to eat the best food. We're going to have the best time without you. That is how all of New York City felt to me at that time. I didn't know anybody. I had no connections. I didn't get invited to cool parties. I had the terrible job. And everywhere you go, you just see these opulent, beautiful, rich homes and these people and these great clothes and they get invited to these things that you've never heard of and you know you couldn't really google stuff on your phone then so when someone would say hey have you heard of such and such you'd be like oh i only go there on mondays and they'd be like they're not open on mondays everything was like a trap for you to fall in so i go back home and I bump into my neighbor on the way in, and he's like, hey. And I was like, hey, how you doing? He's like, look, I'm really trying to get out of town before this transit strike happens. Hey, are you staying here for Christmas? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I am. And he's like, that's great. I don't know why he would think that's great. Other than that, when you're the solo on the totem pole in New York, and someone says that's great to you, what they really mean is you can do me a favor. So he says, listen, I've got this bike. And let me tell you, I knew about his bike. This was my weird neighbor. He had this god-awful two-stroke 50cc Suzuki scooter from the 70s. It was red with a plastic fairing and a little basket on the front. The motor oil he had for it, it sounded like a lawnmower. You know, the lawnmower kind of spits out the oil, but the oil was strawberry scented. So I always knew when this guy pulled up because it was like he was coming through town just farting strawberries left and right, and then he'd park right in front of our building. I figured, yeah, I'm here, it's Christmas, I'll give you a hand. So as soon as he shuts the door and he leaves town, I think about, okay, so now I can say at least, you know, I need Tuesday off because I gotta move this bike for this guy. And then I realize he's not gonna know if I just borrow this bike to escape my evil boss. Somewhere between five and eight million people ride the New York City subway every day. And it's all walks of life. You know, New Yorkers are a sympathetic bunch, especially to workers, I would say. But when you hear that, boy, CNN mistreats his workers, and you go, okay, I'm going to turn on NBC. It's a little different when they say, oh, the MTA mistreats their workers. And you have to say, oh, okay, well, I'll just take the nothing. There is no other way, and there's zero way to get from Brooklyn, where I lived, into Manhattan. The best they could devise was an agreement with the Taxi and Limousine Commission, where they would have all taxis do a $5 per zone. There were five zones in Manhattan. If you go to the Bronx, it's five more dollars. If you go to Staten Island, it's five more dollars. From where I worked to where I needed to get home, it was going to cost me $70 a day to go to my terrible job. And it was freezing cold outside. People had to wait in these huddles on the curb. If you were on Broadway, you were in this mess. It looked like a war zone of people trying to escape. Then you would get in a car that could just pick up strangers left and right all throughout the city. So a total stranger who could murder you would get in a car with you. And the next thing they would do is bring you to your home address. Now they knew where you live. So the next morning, 
there is nothing but traffic from my house in Brooklyn all the way to my job across the bridge into Manhattan. I feel bad for these people and everything, because of course I'm a New Yorker, but I was having the time of my life. I am cruising between cars, just farting strawberries all the way across the Brooklyn Bridge. So I get into my job, and it's like kind of fun actually now, because now there's, you know, the snooty French sommelier is busting tables, and everybody's sort of pitching in, and if you didn't have everything in your uniform, it was okay today, but you know, try better tomorrow. At the end of the night, it just kind of slows down. I'm looking at the hostess, and she's got a sad look on her face. She said, oh, geez, you know, all my friends are kind of screwed in their holiday shopping. Someone else was like, you know, it's crazy. They're, like, giving away the stuff this week. There's sales left and right. You know, it was a very corporate mall, but they would flip over a holiday announcement to the blank side on the back and just write in Sharpie, like, whole store, 60, 70% off. And she just says, oh, my friends are bugging me all day because they're trying to get me to Christmas shop for them, but there's no way I'm going to be able to, you know, lug all that stuff and my work clothes and get there. And I realized this was my chance. This was the only situation in my whole life that my strawberry fartin' Suzuki was gonna be cool. So I turned to the hostess and I said, hey, if you want to pick up a couple things for your friends, I could give you a ride over there because parked outside, I have this Suzuki motorbike with a basket that my neighbor lent me for the week. And she's like, oh my God, could you? Oh my God. And she starts texting, like blazing text, T9 text, old school style. So before I know it, we are just dashing through the mall. It's four stories and we're probably the only people shopping. We can just pick up whatever we want and we load up the bike. And it is tiny. I mean, it's like you're trying to share a piano bench as you ride through town. So I get on the front, she gets on the back and I said, all right, hold on tight. And we whiz downtown just farting strawberries the whole way. She brings me downtown to this party where everybody's inside and they've got Christmas cookies and music playing and hot drinks. We bring the presents to them and it wasn't until I saw the look on everyone's faces. All this time, I just felt sorry for myself. I don't know anybody. I'm such a loser. I felt like Rudolph and I was left out of everything. And that was so dumb because I wasn't Rudolph. I was Santa Claus. So we go into these parties in these beautiful apartments and they're saying, the heroes are here, they brought Christmas, yay! And they're stuffing cookies in our faces and everything. And then we say, oh, sorry, but we gotta go, we have another delivery. And they're like, oh, stay, come back later. We're like, okay, Merry Christmas. So then we go to the next house and they come in and this time she's like grabbing my hand to bring me in and they're like, hey, oh my God, who's this? Like, this is my friend Brendan, he saved Christmas. And one of them says, he's cute. And, oh my God, I'd not once heard that in the whole time I was wearing a uniform in New York City. So we go to the next house and the next house and everyone wants us to come in. They're so happy to see us. They're so grateful. And they're like, who are you? Why did you even do this for us? You're a total stranger to us. And I just thought, you know, it's Christmas. And they're like, oh, that is so sweet of you. And what I really couldn't say to them was like, I was just having the best night of my life. Just going house to house, being the hero everywhere I went. This was my best night I ever had in New York City. We were going to all the coolest parties, and we couldn't stick around long enough because we had other places to go. It was so much fun, and every time she'd lead me out of there, you know, grabbing her little mitten hand on mine, saying, We gotta go! Bye! We'd go to the next place and the next place. 
We go upstairs to the last house to deliver the presents. And Mrs. Claus, you know, she stays with me the whole time. And she's like, this is my friend, Brendan. He's the hero who saved Christmas. Can you believe it? They're Brendan. Cheers for Brendan. Yay, Merry Christmas. They're bringing more cookies and they say, pour a hot drink. Brendan, are you done? You must be freezing. Take your jacket off. Come in. And I stood around for a few minutes and I was really happy. I felt like I belonged. Like this was the city where I lived and where I needed to stay. And that's what they wanted me to do. They said, Brennan, why don't you just come over? You could even just stay on our couch tonight if you want. And I thought about it and I realized that this was so sweet. But I had to get up early and go open the next morning. So I put the mug down and I said to everyone, thank you so much, everybody. This has been the best night of my life. And I want to thank you all for sharing it with me. So have a good party. Merry Transit Strike to all. And to all a good night. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young Crosby Stills Nash 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 and Young Crosby. So eight years ago, my wife and I were in a pretty terrible place. More specifically, the Cheesecake Factory at the Short Hills Mall in New Jersey at Christmas time with my entire family. Everyone was already on edge when we got there because there was an hour-long wait to be seated. My parents are complaining the music's too loud and it's too cold. And my sister's three young boys are bouncing off the walls. And my brother's baby's crying. And I'm just trying to put my head down and not draw any attention to myself, which is tough because my family pretty much thinks everything I do is weird. Like, I ordered fish tacos and immediately my dad's like, Fish tacos? What in the hell? Like, what, are you on a diet or something? You know, because unless you're eating half a pound of raw beef for dinner every night, you're a goddamn communist pussy. So I'm just trying to power through until it's time to go back to my sister's house for dessert. But at some point, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I was like, hey, uh, we parked really far away, so better get a head start so we can meet you guys back at the house. I don't think anybody actually bought that, but they were like, yeah, whatever, just get out of here. So we get up to leave, and as I'm walking past my dad, he pulls me aside and whispers in my ear, Hey, if you get to the house before us, hide Dingle. And he winks at me, and I'm like, what the f- Hide Dingle? Like, is this some kind of old-timey euphemism? Like, is my dad encouraging me to have sex with my wife in my sister's house before everyone gets there? Because that's weird. So I'm like, huh? And then he goes, the elf, you gotta hide the elf. And he winks at me again, and I'm like, okay, is he calling my dick the elf now? Because that's not okay either. Like, what's going on here? Is he having an aneurysm? 
And that's when he explained Elf on the Shelf to me. Yes, Dingle was apparently the name of my sister's kid's Elf on the Shelf. If you're unfamiliar, like I was, Elf on the Shelf is this relatively new Christmas tradition where parents tell their kids that this creepy elf doll is spying on them and reporting back to Santa to make sure that they behave. And then whenever the kids go out, the parents hide the elf in a new spot so that when the kids come back, they think that the elf has magically flown itself wherever it ended up. It's weird but not as weird as the conversation I thought we were having, so I happily agreed to hide Dingle. So my wife and I get to my sister's house before everyone else because, of course, we hadn't actually parked that far away. And we walk in, and I see Dingle dangling from the ceiling fan, and I grab him, and I start looking for a hiding spot. Now, I really want to do a good job with this. You know, I take pride in my work, and I also want to prove to my family that I am not a total moron and I am capable of handling simple tasks. But most importantly, I want to see my nephew's faces light up when they walk in the door and see that Dingle's flown to a new hiding spot and really experience the magic of Christmas again through their eyes. So I'm looking around, and I see these two sconces above the fireplace, and I'm like, ooh, that's perfect. So I put Dingle in one of the sconces, and he fits nice and snug in there, and his arms are hanging over the side, and his smile is all lit up nice, and I actually took a picture of it and put it on Instagram with the caption, Elf on the mother and shelf, because Uncle Vin's hip, kids, he's with it. And then I sat on the couch, basking in the glow of a job well done, waiting for my nephews to burst through the door, which they did a few minutes later. And I watched as my eight-year-old nephew's face turned from excitement to horror as he yelled out, Dingle! No! And that's when I smelled the burning. Yep, apparently Dingle had flown a little too close to the sun. Or the light bulb, in this case. And he was on fire. Yeah, I looked over and saw a huge plume of smoke billowing out from the sconce, and I was like, oh, shit! So I jump up, and I run over to try to save Dingle, and that's when my nephew starts screaming at me, Don't touch him! No, you can't touch him! If you touch him, he's gonna lose his magical powers! And I was like, oh shit, uh, 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 okay, well, uh, I don't want Dingle to lose his magical powers, certainly, but I also don't want you guys to lose your house, so... Sorry, kids. So I grab Dingle out of the sconce and throw him on the floor, and I just start stomping on him, and the kids start going nuts. Like, why, why, Mom, why would Dingle do that? Why would he light himself on fire? They think he put himself there. They don't know that I did that. So to them, Dingle just decided to self-immolate. So they're screaming, and then the rest of my family rushes in to see what all the commotion is, only to find me trampling this poor elf in front of my traumatized nephews in a room full of smoke. So after I finally extinguished Dingle, I shamefully looked up and all of the adults in my family were just standing there silently consoling children while glaring at me with this look in their eyes that very clearly said, What the fuck is wrong with you? Can't you do anything right? And the answer is no, apparently. I don't know, man. I thought it was a great hiding spot. Okay, had I known Dingle was so flammable, probably would have made a better choice there. But uh, hey, hindsight is twenty-twenty, is it not? Anyway, that's the story of how Uncle Vin ruined Christmas. And why now, every holiday season, I just have one phrase floating through my head. Poor Dingle. Poor, poor Dingle. Happy holidays, everybody.
What will go into the Christmas stocking? Turkey, jelly, and the ship's old cooks. An ass and an ox. And a lamb, plain and good. Roy the butcher's boy, all whittled in wood. A white sugar dove. And tanks and guns that made a noise. A handful of lard. Pigs in their smelly pens. And bricks and dolls and cuddly toys. Come morning you'll wake. Go bald. To the clock's tick-tocking. And that's what you'll find in the Christmas stocking that Santa filled for me. audition I never I've actually still I've never been cast once in anything uh, but the first acting job I actually was able to get was as a toy demonstrator at FAO Schwartz and it's an acting job you work retail but basically you have to audition you read a monologue by Princess Pretty and then for two weeks you have to rotate from toy to toy so they have confidence that you can do this. And there's like the fun toys, like I like being on uh, jewelry because I would just make earrings for myself all day and you're supposed to give them to the kids, I never did. Uh, <laughs> but then there were like sucky toys like Band in the Box where it's like maracas, a tambourine and clapper and you do that for eight hours. <laughs> Worst band ever. Uh, or there was the toy veterinarian kit where you have like a stuffed animal dog and you'd have to interrupt families as they go through the store and you're like Spot is sick. Can you help me figure out what's wrong with Spot? Which is like, you know, basically like you and your family want to be left alone, but I'm an actor. <laughs> Mortifying. Uh, but after two weeks, I got assigned to the most high profile of the toys. It was the Lee Middleton doll collection. And I don't know if any of you have seen these dolls, but basically they're weighted in the head and the bottom so that they flop like newborn babies. And it's so creepy. And I worked on the second floor in the adoption center, which was this cottage that they built, and there were all these incubators and incubators of the babies, and there was a white picket fence around it and two rocking chairs. And a typical day of work would go as follows. You know, parents and their children would look at these dolls, and then if they were serious about adoption, we would open the white picket fence and escort the prospective parent usually like a seven-year-old girl, into one of the rocking chairs, and we had to conduct an adoption interview. And again, I'm in like a nurse's uniform with a, with a whole, you know, everything. And it would begin, uh, do you promise to love and care for this baby? Will you read to the baby? Will you change the baby's diaper? And the little girls would always answer, you know, yes. And then you would get to the last question, what would you like to name the baby? And there was always like, you know, Princess Tiffany of Fairy Flowerland. <laughs> and you would write that on a birth certificate and hand it to the parent and then say, now all you have to do is pay the adoption fee. Wink, wink. Which was like $120. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were instructed not to use, you couldn't say purchase or cost or buy, you know, because that would break the illusion of the world. 
and the other thing that, you know, typically when it gets slow at work, you can talk with your coworkers. I worked with three other nurses. And, uh, but that would also break the illusion of the world. So if we weren't working with a customer, we had to always be holding, rocking, or bouncing the display baby doll. The display baby doll was on display for a reason. Something horrible happened in the factory on the day of its conception. It, um, its head weighed five pounds more than all the other babies' heads. So you would pick it up and its head would just flop back <laughs> violently. And its uh, hands uh, had been molded together so it looked like it had flippers. So <laughs> that you pick it up and the head would flop back and the flippers would fly up. And it looked like a tabloid monster baby which is how it earned its nickname. We called it Nubbins. And uh, because Nubbins wasn't up for adoption, he didn't even have an incubator. He was kept in a cupboard, which was like so disturbing because he looked realistically dead. You just open the cupboard and be like, downward dog, dead baby. You'd have to scoop him up and pretend that you cared for him. So uh, these dolls were really expensive. So for most of September, October, we weren't really selling them, which meant that we spent a lot of time holding, rocking, and bouncing baby nubbins. So much time that like, you kind of start to resent. I would complain of lower back pain. I was like, oh. So uh, us nurses, uh, we invented a game. And the object of the game was to try to get another girl to break character by doing something horrible to baby nubbins. <laughs> So like, you know, I would open all the, the drawers and rock Nubbins' head into the jagged edges while like humming a lullaby. Or the best would be like, you, there'd be a whole group of people there and you, you really have to, you scoop up the baby and you really make it look like it's real, you know, burp it. And then at just the right moment, you drop the baby. <laughs> it's, it, everyone knows it's not real, but they still are like, <gasps> gasp. <laughs> So, I mean, that, we would just spend all day doing horrible things to nubbins. And then, one day, it was right after Thanksgiving, everything changed. Uh, do you guys know that there's that show, Rich Girls? It was like the first stupid reality show about rich children. Uh, Tommy Hilfiger's daughter was in it. But they came to FAO Schwartz, and they adopted a baby. And the day after it aired, suddenly, these were like the hot items to get for Christmas, and every mother on the Upper East Side had to have one for her child. And there was a line outside on the street of people waiting to adopt. And it, you know, we couldn't, no more horseplay, no more praise. It was like, you know, adoptions left and right. And within one week, we sold out of all of the white babies. <laughs> and it was three weeks until Christmas. The babies were already on back order. So there was no way to get any more white babies. All we had left were incubator upon incubator of minority babies. <laughs> so every day the same scenario would repeat itself. These mothers, you know, eager to get the hot toy of the year would rush up to the adoption center and you just watch, they would stop dead in their tracks and their heads go from incubator to incubator. <laughs> They'd like pause briefly at the Asian baby like, oh, uh, never mind. <laughs> to incubator and then they would look at us you know trying their best to be politically correct they would be like I'm sorry do you have any other shades of babies <laughs> well the toy manager had like prepped us with a response he taped a memo in the women's locker room that said if the mothers express a disinterest with the babies due to that their ethnicity kindly inform them that while this is all the selection we have available, there's a wider selection available online they can order online. 
well, this isn't what these women wanted to hear. They would go on and on. And they'd be like, oh, don't you have something like my little Susan here? Just something that looks like Susan. <laughs> and so this happened so much that we, you know, we invented another game. And the game was this. Like, if the little girl didn't care, but it was clear the mother did, we would put the mother on the spot by, you know, we'd scoop up a baby and be like, oh, little Maria has really taken to you. And hand it to the, you would make an excellent mommy for Maria. And you just see these mothers in the background like, why are you doing this to me? What did I ever do to you? And the second game we invented involved Brad's memo. Uh, we'd, instead of saying a uh, wider selection, we'd have to say whiter selection <laughs> without getting caught or breaking character. But like, those are the things you do just to survive a job. Because literally every day, these things I didn't expect would happen. And I remember once, in particular, this woman, uh, I, I tried to, to, to sell her a Hispanic baby. And she put her hand on mine and was like, oh, we don't want a dark child. You know what I mean. And I was like, no, I, I don't. But also, unbeknownst to her, I'm actually half Mexican. Uh, I just look white. And my brother's, there's five kids. Three are dark. Two of us are white. So I, I, you know, I don't know what she means. But also, I don't know what she means. Does she honestly think that if someone saw her carrying a Hispanic baby, they would be like, oh, Juan the gardener knocked that kid up. <laughs> only half the story because while we had sold out of all the white babies we still had nubbins who was white with red hair and these green eyes so if we weren't working with the customer we still had to be holding rocking and bouncing nubbins so almost every day some woman would rush up to the the adoption center see nubbins in our arms and think in their mind they're like that's the last white baby so they would say can I see that baby all you ever had to do was turn nubbins around <laughs> and his head would like flop back and the flippers would flip up and they would just say, uh, never mind. And this, you know, this happened so often that us nurses, we decided to make a bet. And the bet was, who do you think is going to sell first, the minority babies or nubbins? And I was like, oh, the minority babies for sure. Who would buy nubbins? And, and then, so, okay, to be honest, there are, there are two ways to end this story. There's the politically correct way, or there's the, do you guys want to hear the real, what really happened? <laughs> All right, it's so depressing. What really happened is this. Uh, we did start to sell out of the minority babies. We sold, um, we, first we sold out of all the Asian babies. Uh, then we sold out of all the Hispanic babies. And then all we had left were incubator upon incubator of black baby dolls and nubbins. So inadvertently, the bet had become, who will go first, the black babies or nubbins? Well, I stood by my initial bet. I was like, we're never going to sell nubbins. But then uh, Christmas Eve, this woman rushes into the store, and she's, she's you know, one of those people dressed head to toe in designer, and she's like toting along this, this solemn child. She gets up to the adoption center. I'm holding nubbins, and she's like, can I see that baby? So I turn nubbins around, you know, slowly for full effect. <laughs> And his head like flops back, the flippers flip up, and she just says, we'll take it. I'm like, nubbins? I, like, I, I don't even know if you can sell nubbins, but I was like, okay. So I open the white picket fence, I sit this little girl down, and I begin the adoption interview. I say, uh, do you promise to love and care for this baby? And this child looks up at me and she says, no. <laughs> 
I mean, I had been doing hundreds of adoptions. No one, technically she had failed the adoption interview. So, for, so I'm like, move on. I'm like, will you read to the baby? And she just looked, she's like, no. So I, I skipped to the last question. I say, I'm like, well, what would you like to name the baby? Stupid. I'm like, I'm not Nubbins' best friend. I'm not gonna call him stupid. So I'm like, well, let's think of other names. And the mother impatiently interrupts. She's like, just name the baby Veronica. She's like, they're not anatomically correct, but he's clearly a boy. So I write Veronica on the birth certificate. And I'm like, now all you have to do is pay the adoption fee. And the mother looks at me and she's like, cute. And takes the birth certificate and they walk away and I, you know, I scoop up nubbins and I put them in a pink blanket instead of a blue one. And as I'm wrapping him up, that's when it hits me. I'm like, wait, nubbins has just been adopted. Like, I love nubbins. Like, I can't let him go to this horrible family. And there's this like montage, you know, like we, we one time put his head underneath the rocking chair. Or like we used to make out with him. <laughs> See if people would turn the corner and they'd be like, oh. Like all these memories. And I was like, I can't let him go to this family. And I was like, but I, I mean, I don't have 120 spare dollars. I'm, you know, and so then I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll call my dad. And I'll just be like, dad, there was this baby and he was gonna go to a bad family. And I think I could be a good family for him. And as, as I'm saying this, uh, you know, and I think honestly, it was also just like, I didn't want to lose the bet. Like, I didn't want that to be the way the world was. So as I'm going through this, they return. And then, you know, I do what I have to do. I hand them little baby nubbins and I say, um, I'm sure baby Veronica will have a wonderful home. And then I watch him, his head bouncing on the little girl's shoulder outside the store until I can't see them anymore. Thank you. <laughs> This is Risk. This is Gasoline Brothers behind me now. And we just heard from Elna 
Baker. Before that, a bunch of interstitial stuff by VVM, Tom Paxton, and Divide and Create. And before that, a little anecdote from storyteller and musician Vin Brew. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast okay let's get back to the stories in a little bit we're going to hear from jude trader wolf but before that it's always great to hear from dc benny Here's Benny now with a story we call 
Jewish Christmas. I grew up in Washington, D.C. in the 70s. My father was an artist, a Polish Jew who came from immigrant parents who had a grocery store. They lived upstairs, the whole situation uh, in the ghetto. So ultimately it was burned down, you know, and like a do the right thing. They moved over from Poland and escaped the Holocaust. Everybody else got killed in the Holocaust, but they made it through. And uh, he became an artist, much to his parents' chagrin. And my mother was a German dancer that he met in New York, a modern dancer. So they were very creative. There was a lot of creativity going on. Everything was interpreted. And he would paint. My mother was his muse. So there were always naked pictures of my mother in the house on the walls growing up or whatever. So that's always nice when your four-year-old friends, five-year-olds come over and say, is that your mom's Pachina? And you're like, eh. So I grew up in this kind of artsy-fartsy house. Like, I never watched shows other kids watched. It was always, like, masterpiece theater, foreign movies. My mom used to take me to see, like, Fellini and Truffaut and all these movies. I'm a kid, Kurosawa movies. I'm watching Seven Samurai. I'm four years old. And other kids are watching, like, SWAT and shit like that. She dressed me different. She'd get all the clothes at the thrift shop and had these, like, little velvet fucking knickerbockers and stuff and shiny shoes. I looked like a little Dutch boy. It was horrible. It was horrible. That part of it was horrible for me. So I never felt like the same as other kids. So because of the German Jew thing, I was growing up in a world that was predestined for conflict. Now, on my mother's side of the family, her father was in the German army. And, uh, you know, that was a topic of discussion. So she uh, converted to marry my father. But it just wasn't enough, so his side of the family sat shiva on him like he was dead to them. Even though my mother converted, my dad married someone who was a German Catholic, so his family said that he was kind of dead to them. They sitting shiva is almost like somebody, you do it after someone dies. So it's very dramatic, it's so over the top, and it did not go over well with my mom or my dad, you know, that's, that's not nice. But... It was all because of this guy that was in the German army. And I remember asking her when I was a kid, was he a Nazi? And she was like, no, he had to join the army. They shoot you. Like, just like, if you don't do your homework, you're going to get shot. That's how it goes down. So they decided that they were going to move to D.C., which is not a good move if you're creative at this time. This is the early 70s. Very conservative there. We lived in a shitty neighborhood. 14th and P Street, which uh, was a very rough neighborhood. There's like drug dealers and hustlers and this and that. I remember there was a lady with no legs down the hall, the banana lady that we used to go see. And my mom would be like, let's go see the banana lady. And we'd go see her and she'd give me like bananas and she had no legs. It was strange. And I remember my mom, someone trying to break in 
through the alley in the back there was a screened off porch in the alley and just like one night this guy's prying his fingers through a hole he made in the screen and my mom was taking this broom and just hitting him in the head with a broom repeatedly just beating this guy in the head and he's still he's got one eye closed trying to squeeze through and she's just smacking him in the head we'll tell him to go home and I'm just watching this three years old so we eventually moved out of that neighborhood we moved into a DC suburb but we were the only artistic family in the neighborhood. Everybody worked for the government, so it was a lot of, you know, cherry loafers and pressed khakis, George Bush haircuts and stuff like that. And our house was like the fucking Adams family house. It was like you go down the block, there's all these houses that look the same, and then it was our house. And like my dad would find these old doors and windows and glue them together and make enclosed parts of it. It just looked almost like a spaceship from somewhere else. And people would walk by and they all the houses look kind of the same neighborhood, nice little lawns. They walk by our house like, what the fuck is that? Who the fuck lives here? You know, it was my parents. So. My mom would teach dance classes in the house, and it was modern dance, so it was very, it was out there. There was some, like, 70s space music, and people, it was just different. And she would go around and get antiques. She had this thing about antiques. We had no fucking money. We're on welfare. But somehow, she would go get these antiques, and she would go trashing. She'd go in the trash and find these things and bring them back. So there'd be like these wrought iron fixtures on the lawn and it was just, it looked crazy. It looked like some Edward Scissorhands would live there or something like that, or our house. And people were always like, that's that. That's the Adams family house. So she wears this big hat and everybody called her the bike lady. She'd ride around on a bike. She'd pick up wrought iron antiques in the bike. It was, you can't explain this existence to people, how different it was. You know, everybody else has their big wheels. They're like, what is wrong with your parents? And my dad would paint and he'd paint my mom naked and a couple other things, dead birds, uh, biblical scenes, like really crazy Absalom and Achitophel. It was just a it was just a really intense environment to grow up in. Everything was creative. You know, every dinner was a production. You know, everything was melded. Religiously, it was very confusing because there was the Jewish part, there was the sort of non-Jewish part. So every year there was a new configuration of how we were going to do the holidays. It was mostly Hanukkah, but then there'd be like a little Christmas stuff. And then also my parents had these friends. There was nobody in the neighborhood they were friends with, but they would import these nutbag friends of theirs. So there was the guy who slept in Rock Creek Park in a cardboard box that wrote poetry all over the box. The poetry guy. My mom loved that guy. He eventually got banned for peeing in one of the house plants during dinner. My dad was like, that guy can't get up during dinner and piss in a house plant. It's just, we can't have that. You know, it's great. He writes on the box and all that, but no more, no more. And then the trash men would come over. My mom would make a breakfast. I'd come downstairs. We're eating breakfast with the trash men. We had a, an RAF pilot, you know, it was all these random. But my favorite friend of theirs was this guy, Michael, who was this gay opera singer. He was Italian. He had a glass eye from a hate crime. He, he hit on the wrong guy in some bar in West Virginia, and someone beat the shit out of him, and then he had this glass eye. But it was not fitted properly, so it would pop out a lot, especially if you made him laugh. For me, I was just discovering I was funny at the time, so I would, every time he'd come up for dinner, I'd make jokes, and he'd be like, ho, 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 and then the, the eye would bug out, and sometimes it would actually kind of pop out, and he would hold it and show it to me, like, blah, 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 blah. And uh, I loved it. I loved it. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Is that fucking eye, man. 
So these, these are like my parents' friends. At this time in my life, I really, really wanted, I wanted to be like the other kids in the neighborhood. I, I think I was about eight, but I, I didn't look like them. I, you know, I couldn't watch the same. Like, I go to school, kids would be like, oh, we watched SWAT or we watched Six Million Dollar Man or whatever. I'm watching fucking Fellini movies, The Grand Illusion. I mean, that's what I would watch. And I couldn't talk to these kids about anything. You know, my mother would read me these morbid German fairy tales for bedtime. There was Der Strubelpeter, which is this tailor that when kids are bad, he comes over with this giant pair of scissors and, like, cuts off their thumbs. <laughs> Or, or like there's one where these kids are making fun of a black kid and he sets them on fire so they're black so they learn a lesson what it's like to be so there's like a moral it was German morality in these stories so it's, I can't even explain how different my upbringing was to everybody around me I just wanted to be like other kids I wanted the same toys the other kids had and the same clothes everybody's got their granimals on or their tough skins or whatever. I didn't have any of that shit I had my little buckle shoes and my velvet vest or whatever it was just Oh, it's traumatic talking about it. The one toy that everybody wanted was this G.I. Joe with Kung Fu Grip. Introducing the new G.I. Joe adventure. And uh, you pull the string in the back and it says stuff. He makes commands. It's like, you know, get to action station. Uh, fire on the mountain or whatever. You know, it said a lot of shit. We're, we're there. Let's go down to the mountain pass. You know, and you pull this and everybody wanted it. My parents were like, no, you can't have the G.I. Joe. So I wanted one of those. So my grandmother, who had sat shiv on all this, would once in a while, she'd sneak by, slide me some money. She'd be like, just remember, you're going to be Jewish. You're going to have a bar mitzvah. You're going to date Jewish girls. But here's $5. And then my mom was like, you can't take bribes. You got to decide for yourself later what you're going to be. Don't take any money from Grandma Sadie. So I was torn. You know, I wanted the G.I. Joe. Because I felt like that would be the thing that would make me normal with the other kids. Like, I'm, I have a G.I. Joe. You have a G.I. Joe. It doesn't matter that I can quote Rocco and his brothers or, or whatever so Christmas came around this is my parents would fight all the time like the police were always at our house they, they got to know us there was always something they fought with the neighbors it was very volatile but they loved each other they loved each other so it was like these fights these intense fights but they just loved each other afterwards it was really crazy so I think the Ali Frazier fight of all of them that I can remember was during Christmas Eve. It was going to be Christmas Eve, so my parents were going to have all their friends over. My mom had just gotten some chair from this antique dealer that this guy, I think he had a crush on her. He gave her a little discount. It was like a layaway thing. I don't know what the fuck, how the details were. We had no money, and yet she had this antique chair. I mean, if you walked in there, it was just, it was like you're in another world. It's like you're in old Europe somewhere. So she had just brought home one of these chairs. And I could tell my dad was pissed because we didn't have any money, but he wasn't really saying anything. Everybody's like, oh, look at the chair. The chair looks great. Look at the chair. You know, my mom did a dance around the chair. You know, you know, it was a modern dance interpretation. Around the chair. So in the morning, my dad would send me to go get cigarettes. So I get on my bike. I'm fucking eight years old. I'd have a note. I go to the Korean place and I get a carton of Marlboro Reds, right? And then I, I could go to the liquor store. And this is the 70s. And I had another note that I would get Almaden Mountain Red Burgundy, which is this cheap ass wine. I don't even know if they still make it. That was some rot gut stuff. So I put it in my bike. No helmet. I didn't have any helmet back then. And I'd bring all that shit back. So they got their supplies. My dad's cooking. My dad was a great cook. 
and my mom's playing music and dancing around the house and everything's kind of cool and then people start trickling in you know this uh, Indian English guy that was in the Royal Air Force he was talking about bombing Germans so he w- he would come over you know he's been boozing already the poet in the box came this was I think later that he actually got banned for peeing in the plant a couple other people and oh, and there was also a farmer this farmer would come around the neighborhood and he would bring uh, food from his farm and then my favorite guy Michael the opera singer with the eye he, he he shows up so everybody's hanging out and the party's starting they start drinking they're drinking that Almaden Mountain Red Burgundy they're smoking the opera singer guy broke out a little weed and my mom was like she smoked it and she's like I can't I want to go back to where I was I don't like to. so everybody's hanging out and what we would do is we would combine. We had this giant menorah that my mother had found somewhere in an antique shop. They would tie bits of Christmas tree branch to it. We called it the tree nora. So the tree nora is in the corner, so we had this kind of Chris Monica kind of thing going on. I remember every year it was something different, but this year it was like really official, and we we're going to do that. So... My parents have everybody over. I'm thinking about this G.I. Joe. It's not under the Trinora. There's like a wooden thing, and there's a book of Grimm's fairy tales, which I've really had enough of the fucking juniper tree, all these morbid uh, stories. And they're boozing. Everybody's getting hammered on this Almaden, and the doorbell rings. It's the antique dealer that my mom has gotten this chair from that she was supposed to pay for. Didn't have any money, so this guy's come to repossess the chair. The RAF pilot... It's like, you can't take, you have bloody hell. Takes a swing at them. They get into a scuffle. And then finally, the farmer goes out to the van and got a two-by-four that had a nail in it. And he was like, this is what I kill hogs with. And you're going to leave that chair right here. And you're going to go back to Armenia or wherever you came from. The chair did stay. I think the chair did stay. I think I repossessed later, but... Uh, the guy came with reinforcements. So it was just a very tense evening. After that, my dad's like, okay, everybody's got to go. My parents get in this huge argument, right? And every time they got in an argument, the World War II shit came up. So it's Christmas Eve, and I'm hearing it. My dad's like, you're going to your buddy, goddamn you, the, the antiques, we're on welfare. And then she's like, you failed artist, you, you're painting. So all this is going on. They get into it. There's a huge fight. My mom's like, your mother said shiva on me. I'm not shiksa. I'm not good enough for you. And he's like, what are you talking? You know, she's like, I wish they burnt your mother in the oven. I wish they stuck you in the oven, right? So my dad is outside when she said that, smoking a cigarette, and she locked him out of the house. And I knew that oven line. I was like, that's like, ugh, it's going to happen. So he punched through the glass, reached in and started unlocking the door, and I see his hand. I mean, all fucking cut up and everything. And I'm like, Mom, go, 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 because he's going to fucking kill you, right? They're yelling. He's wrapping a, a dish towel around his hand. There's fucking blood everywhere. He's like, where is she? Where is she? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. And then right then, if it wasn't bad enough, this is a thing that my mother used to do when they would argue. She would crank on this German marching music. And so you hear it in the house, like, Eins, 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 you know, it's like, and it's like Oktoberfest music and German marching music, whatever. And it's like Quasimodo and the bells for him. him. Him hearing that fucking, I mean, his face, you know, he's covering his ears with the bloody hand. He's like, ah, he's punching the refrigerator. He's losing his mind. He's banging on the door. 
He goes downstairs. He's like smashes the fucking chair, right? Just destroys the chair. The music's playing. He stayed in the basement, just destroying stuff. She locked herself upstairs, playing this crazy fucking music. That was our, our Christmas Eve, man. It was one of many traumatic things. But like I said, they loved each other. The next morning, I get up. The Chris Madonica tree is trashed. But it's like nothing ever happened. Like, he's cooking some breakfast. She comes downstairs. She's like, she looks at him and she's like, you, you want to fight? <laughs> you want to fight? She's like, come on, but you know, fat man, you want to fight? She's kind of teasing him and shit. She's like, are you still mad at me or whatever? And starts poking him and everything. And he's like, ah, oh. he started laughing and he gives her a hug or whatever. And they, and they both apologize to me. And the cycle sort of happened all over again. But it was right then at breakfast. They're kind of making up. Everything feels like it's going to be normal again for the next few days. And the phone rings, and it's the opera singer guy. And he has lost his glass eye. And he's like, he's frantically, he can't find it. He doesn't know how he got home without it. And can we look for the glass eye? So we're all looking for it. We're looking under the chair bits. We're looking all over for this fucking eye. And I'm trying to remember, I made him laugh at the dinner table. What did it pop out there or whatever? But then I remember that he used to go out. We had a compost in the back and he would go out and smoke a joint back there every once in a while because my parents didn't do that. I went out and there, like right next to an orange rind, was that uh, glass eye. So I bring it in. Boom. They call him. I get a reward of $5. I get the fucking G.I. Joe. He gets the eye. So, and it was not like a bribe. My mom was like, you can take that $5. She gave him his eyeball back. So the story does have a happy ending. It all ends ends happy until the next fight, you know, which was, I think, about four or five days later. holiday season that I'm living on the East Coast, I feel like it's something I've been waiting for my entire life. I grew up on a farm in Wisconsin, obsessed with New York City. From movies and TV shows and books, New York City seems to me a place of constant activity and amazing possibility. A place anything could happen, especially New York City at the holidays. Our Christmas season kicked off with watching the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which ends at Macy's, the mecca of all department stores, the kind of place I have never been, so I cannot wait to experience that for real. And I was watching Miracle on 34th Street over and over again over the entire holiday season when I was a kid, which takes place at Macy's. And there are other movies that just make The New York City shops look so stunning. There's usually music playing from somewhere, people with packages. 
Then there's the Nutcracker at Lincoln Center, the Rockettes at Radio City Music Hall, ice skating at Rockefeller Plaza. I cannot wait to experience that holiday magic for myself. So when my best friend in college, Maddie, and I are planning our move to the East Coast, we have ideas about how we're going to spend this holiday. First of all, with our boyfriends, we will be going to see the tree at Rockefeller Plaza. We will go with our boyfriends to shop in the village. We will sit and drink chai latte while Nat King Cole sings chestnuts roasting on an open fire in the background in some cafe. That is the plan. Although it's been said many times, many ways, Merry Christmas to you. So in 1981, we both move out to the East Coast. She gets an apartment on the Upper West Side. She's an actor. She hits the ground running, getting work. I am a music therapy intern at a psychiatric hospital in Cedar Grove, New Jersey. A short commuter bus ride from Manhattan, but a world away in every other sense. This is a sprawling campus of about 100 red brick buildings that are fading and sagging yellowed windows. They house maybe a thousand patients. Many of them have lived there their entire lives. And uh, it's an unpaid internship, but they do give us housing, which is a building on the grounds of the hospital that is a hundred year old condemned house that looks like the Overlook Hotel in The Shining, only much more haunted. There's a big wraparound porch that has parts rotting out a chandelier in the foyer in this place that probably at one time was a lovely building. And this chandelier is dripping a little bit more glass every day. We have keys for locks that do not work. There's six of us interns in the same hallway. We're the only people in the house. And thank God for them because there was no way anybody could ever survive spending the night alone in this place. It's something that I have to do until May when I will finish my degree and I can get a real job that pays a real paycheck. And it's doing work, bringing music into people's lives that really need music. They need it. But the environment starts to get to me by Thanksgiving. I start to feel the sadness and heaviness of this place. And then I get a letter from my boyfriend saying he doesn't want to have a long distance relationship so he's not coming for any weekend visits. And I am completely broke. This is an unpaid internship. So uh, the only money I have is from a side gig, a minimum wage job that I do on the weekends. Maybe I make 80 or $90 that has to last me for the week for shampoo and toothpaste and food and everything. So there will not be any Christmas shopping, that's for sure. And then Maddie is not around. She's doing a national tour of Annie, which is awesome. She's got real work, but she's not there. I do have a key to her apartment, however, and thank God for that. Because when this place really gets to me, I take that commuter bus, go to her apartment, and she has something I do not have, which is a television. And on that television is HBO, which in the early 80s is a revolution. Being able to watch movie after movie with no commercials So because I'm broke, this is sometimes my relief from that environment as I go to Maddie's apartment, watch movies with the sounds of New York City all around me. The Thursday after Thanksgiving, the phone rings in the hall. It's Maddie. 
I I, 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 she's so upset. I say, Maddie, what's the matter? What's wrong? She says, Pete left me while I was on tour. And I say, oh no, I'm so sorry. Oh my gosh. He broke up with you while you were out of town. That's awful. She says, and the tour ended. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. These non-union tours, you know, they just end. It's terrible. You're, oh, I'm so sorry. And she says, oh, and he stole from me and he, he took the television. And I think, no, not the TV. But I don't say that to Maddie, of course. And she says, you have to come for the weekend. I can't be alone. I'm freaking out. I don't feel right. You have to come and be with me. And I'm thinking, if I don't work this weekend, I have $20 that has to last me for 10 days. And it isn't going to last me for 10 days. But another part of me knows if I say no to Maddie, that's not in the holiday spirit on any level. So I say, of course I'll come. Of course I'll come. And I'm scared and I'm not happy, but I know it's the right thing. So I take the commuter bus and I'm walking up Broadway because I don't have enough money to waste on the subway. And I hear White Christmas playing over some loudspeaker. And I see decorations in the store windows, tinsel, lights. And my heart feels so heavy. And it hurts my eyes to look at all of this. This is not the magic I had imagined. But have a blue, 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 blue I get to Maddie's apartment, and she's hunched over the phone with her hands on the receiver, and I wrestle it away from her. She's waiting for Pete to call. I say, you don't need that. We have each other. We are going to get through this. We are independent women. Did you eat anything? She says, no. So I give her food. She falls asleep. She wakes up at 2 a.m. I say, have you showered? She says, no. She takes a shower. It's like having a newborn. I sleep when she sleeps. I feed her. I clean her up. By Saturday late afternoon, she's a little more coherent. I say, Maddie, is it okay if I go back to New Jersey and go to work tomorrow? Because I have no money and I need to make some money. She says, you can't leave me. You can't leave me. Just please stay tomorrow night. I have to go to work tomorrow. Go with me and just hang out with me, please. Okay, I know it's the right thing. I stay. She has a side gig when she's not acting, which is co-checking at a place called Charlie O's on 57th Street. So I go with her there. There's no room for me in the co-checking space. There's all these people coming in. It's the brunch crowd. So I sit at the bar just for moral support, for object constancy, so she can see me there, feeling sad and resentful with these happy families and couples and their packages from shopping. And I see there are two trays of drinks in front of me that are sitting there for a long time. And the hostess keeps passing me very angrily, looking at me, looking at the drinks, looking at me. And I'm thinking, she's mad because I'm not ordering something because that's not happening. And then she comes over to me and she says, would you take that tray of drinks over to that table? It's called table eight. I say, me? She says, yes, please. Just two people called in sick. You see how busy it is. Just please take those drinks over to that table. I say, okay. I take the drinks and it's a a man with his wife and looks like a college age kid and maybe his mom. And they're really angry. I set the drinks down. I'm shaking. He says, you know, we've been waiting here a very long time. And I say, I I understand. I'm, I'm very, very sorry. And he says, 
Well, the service at Charlie O's is terrible. I say, I, I understand. I, I get it. And he says, well, you need to take our order. And I say, I'll get some. And he says, you'll get someone? And I go, oh. I'll go over to the hostess. I say, they need somebody to take their order. She gives me one of those notepads that waiters write their orders on. She says, please, please, just take their order. Help me out. So I go back to the table. I'm shaking. I take their order. He's so angry. And I go back and I see what the other waiters are doing, which is clothespinning the piece of paper to a string that goes between the bar and the kitchen. Then I take a tray of drinks over to table seven, as requested by the hostess. And I'm setting them down. And this is a younger couple with a middle school age kid. And the lady says, you know, the service here is terrible. We've been waiting a really long time. And I say, I know, I'm so sorry. Charlie O's is very sorry. And she says, you know, there's a draft here that's been on us this entire time while we waited. Can you have to do something about that draft? And I say, I will. I promise you I will do something about that draft, but I have to tell you, I don't know who to talk to because I don't actually work here. And she says, you don't work here? And I go, I say, no, I got drafted into waitressing because people called in sick and you see all these people, it's so busy. She laughs and her husband laughs. I say, I'll take your order. I'll take care of the draft. So I close pin that piece of paper to the string. And then I go to another table and they complain about something. And I say, I know this is crazy, but I don't even work here. And they say, that's, whoa that's nuts. And I say, I know it's bonkers, but you know, I I got drafted into waitressing and they think it's pretty funny. So the food comes out for the first table and they're scary people. I set the food down, go to the next table. I bring their food. They're a little more relaxed about it because they know I don't actually work there. And when they go to pay their bill, they say, you know, you gave us a really good story today. Happy holidays. And they give me $35 in cash. Oh, that feels very nice. So the next table, when they're checking out, I say, isn't this so crazy that I don't even work here? And they say, I know. And I say, yes. And I live on the grounds of a psychiatric hospital in a condemned building where I'm an intern just until next May. And they say, that's wild. And they give me a nice juicy $30 tip. At another table, I say, yeah, uh, music therapy. It's an unusual field. You know, doesn't pay a lot. I'll probably owe more in student loans than I can make in a year. But people need music no matter where they are in their lives. They give me a big juicy tip. And at the end of my shift, because now I call it a shift, I have $210 in cash. And Charlie O's gives me dinner. So Maddie and I walk out of there and we part ways. She's in a little better shape. And I'm walking down 7th Avenue. And I'm hearing the song, We Need a Little Christmas, playing over some loudspeaker. And I feel this wad of cash in my pocket. And I'm thinking, nothing about this weekend is anything like I had imagined. Just like nothing about this holiday season is anything like I would have imagined. But I think today, I actually experienced some of that New York City magic. I know I did the right thing to come and stay with Maddie. I know that was the holiday thing to do and the friend thing to do. But also, I had one of those New York City experiences that can only happen in the moment when you just let it occur and you say yes to it. Maybe I'm waiting for this holiday thing to happen to me like I'm in a movie, when what you really have to do is generate that holiday spirit. You have to create it and make it happen. And that's what I have to do 
with my patients. And I'm on that decamp bus going back to the Overlook Hotel, <laughs> to a world, an environment I know is going to be the same sad place that it was. And I know that I'm going to make it through this to the end. I know that I'm going to make it through because I just experienced that little magic and I'm going to use music and I'm going to keep on doing what I do. I'm going to make it because I just had my own little miracle on 57th Street. all for this week's episode folks holiday stories redux 2 <laughs> this is rend collective behind me now we just heard from jude trader wolf and before that a little song by joseph spence folks don't forget that on january 22nd 2022 risk will be back in san francisco go to risk-show.com slash or to get your tickets now. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Folks, don't forget to follow us on our socials on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We are at risk show on twitter and instagram i am at the kevin allison and our school 
The Story Studio is at thestorystudio.org. If you'd like to pitch us a story this year, go to our website, risk-show.com slash submissions. Everything you want to know is all right there. And folks, today's the day. Take a risk. The most glorious time of the year. The kids chilling, belling, and everyone telling you that time fear. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the hap- happiest season of all. It's a children needs evenings and every meetings when friends come to call. It's the hap- happiest season of all. Building and crafting and fellows for toasting and tabling to keep and it's so. It's coming with stories and life and stories and still long ago. It's a map. Happiest season of all. The time of the seasons and the happy meetings and friends come to call. It's a hap- happiest season with this most glorious time. It's the most wonderful time of the year.